Welcome. Great to have you here with us this morning. My name is uh, Johnny, pastor here at Redeemer, and we'll carry on with the birth narrative of Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that as the angels praised and glorified you for the Lord Jesus' arrival, as the shepherds rejoiced in the coming of the Lord Jesus, then in our hearts this morning we would experience something of the same joy and wonder and awe that your Son came into our world. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of my uh, favorite podcasts that I, I like to listen to when I'm going for a walk is called The Rest is History. Um, if you don't like history, it's still good fun to listen to. They're like two old friends just nattering away. Um, but they did a couple of episodes just before Christmas on the Christmas story. Uh, and then more broadly on the Gospels themselves. And they are not Christians um, the, uh, as historians. They're, they're first and foremost historians. One of them, Tom Holland, is, is a bit more sympathetic towards the Christian uh, kind of message. But, but neither of them are, are Christian. But right at the end, one of the presenters said this. Is it, talking about the birth of Jesus and then the Gospels, is it the biggest story in history? Because it is so foundational for our entire understanding of ourselves and the world, our culture, our literature, our assumptions, our moral landscape. And Tom Holland replied, if Jesus hadn't existed, the world would be unfathomably different. What we're looking at this morning is the moment the world changed. It's not just history either. It is the biggest story in history. Let's think, first of all, Jesus' birth, the power of God in history. Have a listen to verse 1. These are all familiar verses to us, aren't they? But, but, but come up them with fresh eyes. Verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke goes out of his way to situate the birth of Jesus in a certain time and a certain place. Caesar Augustus was the second emperor of Rome after Julius Caesar, and he reigned over the Roman Empire between 27 BC and 14 AD. And Quirinius was governor of Syria under Augustus Caesar. And back in chapter 1, actually, Luke gives us a bit more. He talks about Herod the Great, who reigned in Jerusalem from 37 to probably 4 BC when he died. That's interesting, actually. So it's very unlikely that Jesus was actually born in 0 B. Well, what would it be? Just like 0, wouldn't it? It seems most likely that he was born in, in 4 BC. Between 6 and 4 BC is what people reckon. But the point is, Augustus really was emperor of Rome, and Quirinius really was governor of Syria, and Herod really was king in Jerusalem. The birth of Jesus is history. And of course, that gives us confidence in our faith, doesn't it? Right at the beginning of his gospel, Luke writes, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been told. Luke spoke to the early eyewitnesses, and he wrote an orderly account of the events that happened. Why? So that his readers could have confidence that this is true. Facts 
matter, dates matter to the Christian faith. The gospel, the birth of Jesus, is history. And in that podcast I mentioned earlier on, Tom Holland discusses the accounts of the gospels. And he is skeptical about certain aspects, but in reviewing them, he says this, it would be on the screen, there are lots of reasons why you might choose not to believe in God, but the inadequacy of the New Testament as evidence would not be one of them. I come to this from studying both the origins of Islam and from studying classical sources, and the closer I get to the Gospels, the more impressed I am by how much evidence there is for Jesus. The Gospel, the birth of Jesus, is history. It's different. The scriptures are unique amongst religious texts. They are self-consciously not myth, like the accounts of the Romans and the Greek gods and Eastern religions. They are not myth. And they're not like the Quran, Muhammad, who claimed to have these special revelations while hidden away in a cave on his own. No eyewitnesses, no verification. The events of the Gospels are played out on the pages of human history so that we could see and know and believe. You can know the certainty of these things. But actually, this isn't just about history for Luke. See, something else is going on. It's not just about history. It's about power as well. When you read chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, you feel the overwhelming force of the Roman Empire. Luke writes, literally, that Augustus issued a decree to all the world. Obviously, it doesn't mean every corner of the globe, but he's making a point. Augustus had authority over the known world. And when Augustus decrees something, people obey and follow. So, verse 3, everyone went to their own town to register. The emperor of Rome commands, everybody obeys. And the census itself, the the, the register. What's the purpose of that in the ancient world? It's about imposing your rule, affirming your rule over the people who take part. And of course, that they can then pay taxes. If you lived in Judea, it was very obvious who had power. It was Rome. It was Caesar Augustus. But look what happens when his decree reaches those living in Judea. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, was expecting a child. Well, no big deal. Joseph and Mary, heavily pregnant with Jesus, like countless others, have to kind of get up, move somewhere else to to go and sign this register. Just another couple living under the power of Rome. But notice where they go. Bethlehem, the town of David. In the Old Testament, there was a prophecy, a promise that God's king would be born in Bethlehem. Listen, it's on the screen, Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, I can never say it. It's there. You can see what it is. Though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth. But the Messiah, God's king, was to be born in Bethlehem. 
So how does God get Joseph and Mary and the baby in her womb 90 miles down the road to Bethlehem? He uses the full apparatus of the whole of the Roman Empire. He ordains that Augustus would order a census. Feels a little bit over the top, doesn't it? He could have got Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem in all sorts of ways. Could have been a family bereavement that meant that Joseph had to go back. Just maybe Joseph had that kind of, you know, longing to kind of walk the old streets where he was when he was a little boy, that kind of sense of nostalgia, and just thought, Mary, let's, I know you're pregnant, but let's go back. I want to go home. But God doesn't do that. Instead, to get two people 90 miles down the road, the Lord uses the most powerful man in the world to issue a census that will impact everybody in the Roman Empire. That is 60 to 70 million people. Feels like overkill, doesn't it? It's like going on holiday to Spain. You, you remember the children, you get on the plane, and then you realize you've forgotten the dog. You wanted the dog to come with you, you've forgotten the dog. I mean, I would have, I think that's a better thing to have left the dog at home, but, but you wanted to bring the dog, you arrive in Spain, so what do you do? You charter a huge jumbo jet just to fly your dog over to be on holiday with you in Spain. You see, why does God do it this way? Because he wants to show us where true power lies. Power doesn't ultimately lie with Caesar Augustus or the Roman Empire, but with the God of history. History isn't the random interactions between nations and powers. It's not just the consequence of human decisions and natural disasters. History belongs to the Lord. Politics, war, censuses, emperors, they're all serving one purpose, and that is the purpose of God. And it makes you think, doesn't it? If God is willing to use a whole empire to get one baby 90 miles down the road, well, then what else might he be doing? What else is he capable of? What else could he be doing today? We instinctively get afraid, don't we? When the powers of earth start moving and start flexing their muscles. Well, just remember how Jesus came into the world. The Lord used the most powerful man to move one baby 90 miles down the road. The birth of Jesus is history, but it's more than that. It's the power of God in history. Secondly, Jesus' birth is the glory of God in humility. So eventually Joseph and Mary find somewhere to stay and Jesus is born and they lay him in this feeding trough, this manger in Bethlehem. And as Mary is giving birth, just outside Bethlehem, there are shepherds doing what they do. They are guarding their sheep at night. And then we know the story. The skies burst open. Light is everywhere. And they see something. Now we know what they see. They see an angel. But listen, they see something else as well. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They see an angel, but they see something else. They see the glory of the Lord. It's hard to pin down what exactly that looked like, but but we know what it felt like. Verse 9. They were terrified. There are only a few times in the Bible where the glory of the Lord is seen or or, or better felt. I'll give you some examples. It's the glory that settled on top of Mount Carmel in the Old Testament that left the people trembling with fear and unwilling to approach. 
It's the same glory that filled the temple in the Old Testament and that consumed any who would enter uninvited and unprepared. The same glory that Isaiah saw in a vision and left him pleading for his life. Woe is me. It's the same glory that left Job trembling when he encountered the glory in a storm. Shepherds saw the glory of God and they were terrified. Professor Stephen Hawking, in his book, A Brief History of Time, he wonders whether there is a theory, a mathematical equation that can explain everything. But even if one can't be imagined, he suggests that there is something more to life than just physics and mathematical equations. He wrote this, even if there is only one possible united theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Well, on that first Christmas night in a field outside of Bethlehem, the shepherds saw that deeper reality. They saw the one who breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. They saw the creator, the sustainer, the power, the Lord God Almighty, the glory of the Lord. And they were terrified. But there is something odd about this, isn't there? What is the glory of God doing in a field outside Bethlehem, appearing to shepherds? If the glory of God had descended on the temple in Jerusalem, that would have made sense. Or if the glory of God had appeared to the religious leaders of Israel or the powers of Rome, that would make sense. But no, the Lord reveals his splendor to lowly shepherds in a field covered in mud, sheep all around outside Bethlehem. You see, we're seeing something incredible about God. At the birth of Jesus, we see the glory of God in humility. He comes to the lowly. And actually, it's not just the appearance of God in the field, is it? It is the appearance of God in the manger as well. Listen to what the angel says to the shepherds, verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The angel tells the shepherds, I bring you good news. A saviour has been born, not only a saviour, but the Messiah, the promised king. And not only the Messiah, the Lord as well. Do you know, so far in Luke's gospel, the, the, the name Lord has only been used to describe God. In fact, when the angel Gabriel promised Zechariah, you will have a son and he'll proclaim the salvation of God. He says, your son will be God's messenger. He says, your son will go before the Lord. And the angel says to the shepherds, that Lord, God Almighty, is Jesus Christ, born in a manger. And so joy of joys, God has come. Jesus has come. Salvation has come. All evil will be turned back. Oppression will end. Sin will be dealt with. The wicked will be overcome. This is the moment when the world changed. God has come. Christ has come. Salvation has come. And then comes the surprise. Listen to what the angel says next, verse 12. This will be a sign to you. This is how you will spot this 
person. This is how you'll spot the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, God Almighty, the one who is going to put all things right. What did it say? He's going to come riding into Jerusalem with an army of 10,000 men. He'll be seated on a golden throne with courtiers up front and servants at the back. No, this will be a sign. How do you know who it is? You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It's not what you expect, is it? A great saviour, the one who put all things right, who will deal with the biggest problems that beset every human civilization. Who is he? A baby. And not just a baby, but a baby with no connections whatsoever, lying in a feeding trough. Doesn't make sense, does it? Before Christmas, um, little baby Ezra was born. And uh, he, he's a beautiful baby. He's delightful. He's precious. But I mean this in the nicest possible way. Ezra is not particularly useful. And that's okay. He's a baby. We don't have babies because they're useful. Here's a conversation that never happens. A husband says to his wife, so look, here's the thing. I've been looking at our financial situation. We're going to struggle to pay the energy bill. And I've just got back from the doctor and blood pressure is really high. I think I'm being overwhelmed by stress. The wife would not say back, look, I've got the answer. Let's have a baby. <laughs> Babies don't solve problems. They create problems. Doesn't make sense, does it? The mighty ruler, a weak baby. The saviour needs saving. The giver of life needs feeding. The protector needs protecting. Why does God do it this way? Because the glory of God is seen in humility. The power of God is seen in weakness. The Lord comes. Salvation comes. The Christ comes comes as a baby in a manger because the way to defeat sin and evil is by being the opposite to sin and evil. Humility, not pride. Think about that for a moment. Sin grasps for power. The Son of God becomes holy and in a sense lays aside his power. Sin is self-serving. The Son of God gives up the comfort of heaven for the sake of others. He is self-giving. Sin is proud. The Son of God becomes a baby born in a feeding trough. He is humble. Sin despises weakness and is fiercely independent. The Son of God becomes a helpless child, weak and utterly dependent on everyone around him. See, not only is this approach the opposite to sin, it is the thing that overcomes sin and evil. Jesus plays it out in his life. How does he win? Through losing. How does he bring life? Through death. How does he end up enthroned over Lord of all, as Lord of all? When he is crucified. God defeats sin and evil by being the opposite to sin and evil. This will be a sign to you, a sign that God has come, that salvation has come. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The glory of God is seen in humility, the power of God in weakness. It's beautiful, isn't it? You can never make this up. And here's something to consider. 
If the greatness of God and glory of God is seen in humility, if strength is in weakness, if victory comes through defeat for our Lord and King, well then for those in his kingdom, those who follow the Lord Jesus, it's likely to be the pattern for our life as well, isn't it? There's a beautiful prayer, it's called the Valley of Vision, idea of being in a, in a valley surrounded by the hills and the mountains, a low place, and, and it captures this kind of upside-down life for the Christian. It'll be on the screen, let me read it to you. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let me learn that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. The glory of God is seen in humility. The power of God is displayed in weakness. And what is true of our Savior, it is likely to be true for us as well. Jesus' birth, the glory of God seen in humility. As we finish, let's think about our reaction. Finally, Jesus' birth Treasure and ponder. After the angels' announcements, we, we, we get all these different reactions. The, 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 the angels break out into a chorus of singing. The shepherds' reaction is brilliant. They, they obey, they go to Bethlehem just as the angels told them. Then they evangelize, they tell anyone and everyone what they've heard and seen. And then, like the angels, they worship God. That is a model response. A modern response to Jesus. Obedience, evangelism, worship. But I want us to just see Mary's response here. Verse 18. The shepherds speak of Jesus. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Some are amazed at the news of Jesus. But that amazement is contrasted with Mary's response, isn't it? Being amazed seems not to be the ideal response. Perhaps a bit shallow. For a moment, these people find the news fascinating and and incredible and interesting. But it only lasts a moment. In, In 10 years' time, will these people still be talking about Jesus and thinking about Jesus? It's like when you, you, know, you get a new gadget. For a moment, it's the best thing you've ever had. And then the interest fades and eventually it ends up in the same top drawer as all the other gadgets that captured your imagination for a moment. But Mary is different. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She treasures and contemplates and meditates and dwells upon and thinks over all that has happened. Brothers and sisters, if only we were more like Mary. My fear is that I'm too like those who are amazed 
I see something in the scriptures. I, I, I hear something about God. So, some wonderful answer to prayer happens in my life. And I think, wow, this is amazing. And then I move on. I forget. I lose interest. I read a passage. I listen to a sermon. And in the moment, this is brilliant. Then it's gone. But not Mary. She contemplated and pondered and considered all that was happening. She treasured it in her heart. All that had been said to her. Gosh, there was a lifetime of things to ponder for her, wasn't there? Who knows what she was dwelling on, but she must have looked at that baby Jesus and wondered. Wondered about the power of God. How he could take on human nature. And still be fully God. How this baby that she was nursing and dressing and changing the nappies and feeding was also fully divine. (laughs) Or what about the wisdom of God? To defeat sin by being the opposite of sin. Or what about the kindness of God to use the lowly and the unknown and the forgotten to bring salvation to the world? Well, here's one. What about the presence of God? He is always present everywhere. And yet at the birth of Jesus, he is specially and particularly present in a certain place and a certain time. Just take that for a moment. In a special way, in a certain time, God was present. In some ways, it's why we think our Sunday gatherings are so important. Just as the glory of God appeared to the shepherds in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way, while also being present everywhere, but in a particular time, place, and way, he appeared to the shepherds in a field. So the Lord has promised to meet with us at a particular time as we gather on a Sunday, in a particular way, by his spirit and through his word. That's something to consider and ponder, isn't it? As wonderful as it was for the angels to see the glory of God in a field outside Bethlehem, there's a way in which we can enjoy that kind of experience as we gather in a school hall in Winchester. The presence of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the kindness of God, so much to treasure and ponder. The birth of Jesus is History. It is the greatest story in history. And the right response, well, the shepherds show us it is obedience, it's evangelism, it's worship, but it is also to treasure and ponder these things. And what a lifetime we have before us to do just that. The power of God in history, the glory of God in humility. There is something to treasure and ponder. Moment of quiet, and they're going to pray. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Heavenly Father, what joy, what wonder. That your son was born to us and for us and for our salvation. 
Gracious God, we pray that like the shepherds, we would obey your son, we would speak of your son and we would worship him. And we pray that like Mary, the fuel of that worship would be the treasuring up of all that we have heard and all that we have seen and then contemplating it, pondering upon it, turning our hearts more and more towards you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.